we are starting right now. So welcome to Tuesday Talks, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is the most fabulous Charlie, one of my really wonderful friends who is on lockdown in Japan while I'm on (laughs) lockdown in Italy from the current So yeah, we're super happy that we get to be here together and um, and actually talking with each other the wonderful, wonderful things of uh, modern technology. Yes. So how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Um, having a much better day than I think a lot of people are. But um, yeah, I had, had a really nice day. Got a lot of work done. Cafes are all empty. So it's really nice to just like be able to work from my computer and, and take that to a cafe and have a whole cafe to myself. Yeah, yeah. I definitely went for a run this morning. So yeah, there's the streets were quite empty. It was it was yeah. Lovely. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> kind of a ghost town, but yeah, um. Okay. So we're going to be talking about choosing your perspective, which I think is wonderful for yeah. right now, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, all right. You want to start? You want to throw in the first the first punch and we'll see what happens? Okay. Um, so for me, this is a super important thing because I really believe strongly in taking control of your life and not letting other people define your life's path for you. And, and that can mean all kinds of different things. Um, and that for me has meant a lot of different things too. Um, especially coming to Japan as a foreigner here, there's there's this narrative that I think a lot of foreigners have here, which is you'll come to Japan and you'll be an English teacher and that's all you can ever be. You can never integrate into the society. You can never, they'll never treat you with respect. And all of this, there's all of these narratives that you hear in your first year or two living in Japan. Like you'll always be an outsider. And, um, and I don't like that, that people telling you what you can choose, you know, like I, I like to be able to choose my own story and uh, you know, I'm, just about to get into year eight in Japan now, which is crazy to think I've spent the last nearly decade in Japan. And um, I'm still loving my life. My life is awesome. Like, you know, and I get to choose that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to throw throw a yes and at you. Okay. okay. So, um, so do you remember like the yes and brain? Yes, yeah. Okay. So yes, what I love about what you're saying is this, this idea of not having it dictated for you, you know, like that, that idea of, um, it doesn't have to, it, when people are like, it has to be this way, or this is sort of the mm. only options, um, really seeing that the, for the lie that it is. Okay. Mm. Um, and I have found something that's very interesting around this idea of, of controlling your own life and, and all of that kind of stuff, which is, um, this really interesting play when uh, I realize that in the end, I'm really not controlling my life. Like I'm not mm. actually the one that's in control. It's more kind of the universe that's in control of that stuff. Um, and finding the myself in the flow of that mm-hmm. so that, um, so that, you know, because I've had the same thing too, of people being like, well, you can't do this, Carmen, or you mm. can't do that, or it's against the rules or whatever, you know, all of those kind of, you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't do that kind of stuff. Um, and to a certain degree, you know, my life has been managed by the universe, you know, like I follow my, I follow John around for his career and stuff. And so being in that place where I'm like, 
I am in the flow with the universe now. How do I interact with that? How do I play with that? How do I make my own choices within that flow that's kind of around me? I think mm. that that's, it's a very, it's this very interesting place for me to be. Yeah. And there's, there's nothing, I'm not saying like um, that people have complete control. Like I can't be the president of the United States. I wasn't born in America. I can't, I can't be a hundred meter sprinter as much as I wanted to when I was young. I just wasn't fast enough, you know, like, and some people are, it's like genetically, they have a huge advantage to you know do certain things. If you have a, um, I don't know, if you have some kind of disability that stops you from running the hundred meter sprint in the Olympics, you're, you're just not going to do it. But that doesn't mean that you don't have choices like, and you don't have, you can't choose your attitude. Like there's this really fantastic quote that's really guided me a lot in the last um, maybe five or so years was uh, Victor Frankl saying the, the last vestige of um, human expression is your attitude and they can't take that away from you. No one can take your attitude away from you. And I, you know, Victor Frankl, right? Like um, he was in a, a concentration camp in World War II. So uh, that, you know, having that attitude after that kind of experience, you know, for me in this modern world that's so convenient, so easy, like I, I get to have that choice and I, and I get to have it quite comfortably, I think. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think that that um, builds onto that idea and, and I guess to build onto that idea of the attitude. Um, mm. Also this, like when we're talking about choosing your narrative, you know, mm -hmm. of, and it's the kind of not, it's, it's, it's almost like that's like a step above maybe the choosing your attitude. It's like you choose mm. your attitude and then you choose the narrative that you are saying about your life with mm. this attitude, almost like as a foundation, or maybe it's like, here are the, here are some sort of events. Here's mm -hmm. the attitude that you choose, and then here's the narrative that you tell your you tell about right. um, about everything that's going on. Right, and both telling to yourself and to other people, right? Like a narrative that you the once you have your attitude and having a narrative for your own internal narrative, what you're saying, the kind of story that you're telling yourself. You also tell that story to other people, and then other people can see into your attitudes. And I think I think maybe other people have kind of more of an insight into that sometimes than you have into yourself when you, you know they can see like clearly there's something up with your narrative here um and and other people see things that you don't you know yes i love that so much i think that this is one of the reasons why um having having friends that will ask you questions we were just, talking about. People who <laughs> I was like, just looking for that word what was the word <laughs> oh yeah friends oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like and it's also like the friends that will really ask you the probing questions almost mm. in service to you that they're mm. interested in who you are truly on the inside and then and then be like mm, that's very interesting i hear you saying this thing over and over again i wonder if that's really you know the narrative that you want to tell or i see you as more than that or you know what's going or even just like curiosity about it of like what is that what's going on there yeah, maybe it's like the friends that you have, like, um, I'm trying to think of the right word as well. Like, it's a different word from friend. It's like confidant or something like that. Like, the, the friend who cares enough about you that they'll call you on your bullshit. And that's, I mean, it's a rare thing. It takes, it takes time. It takes trust to have a friend who will do that. I'm glad that I have that kind of friend in you. I know you're always going to call me on my bullshit. Always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that for, for me, it's so, like, 
I think that you are much more wonderful than you think that you are. The stories that you tell in your head are, and I'm like, uh-uh, I'm not accepting that crap yeah. story that's going on in there. You yeah, know? we've been through this. Yeah. We've been through this. <laughs> I mean, yeah. me too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that I do the same thing too. And I want friends who will be like, you are much more than that. You are much more than that story that you're telling inside of your head. Right. I know that there's a story that I still, I don't know, this is, this is such an interesting story that has been going on for me personally a lot. And it's, it's in this like wider context. And it's a really a story that I personally want to really bring to the forefront. It's important to me, which is this story of just a mom. And it's like, Mm. it's this story that we tell inside of our heads of like, well, I'm just a mom, you know? So, and, and it's even like, when people will go to apply for jobs after being a stay-at-home mom for seven years, you know, and, and it's like this, this, well, I was, I was just a mom during that time, you know, and, and it's, and I, and it's such an, it's such an entrenched narrative in us. Like it's, it's so entrenched that I don't even think that I didn't even recognize it consciously for a really long time that that there was even almost like a different perspective from that narrative, you know? And I still, I still think it's out there in society. of like, well, it's such a strange narrative as well. Like why, why is that? Why is that a just, a? Uh? it doesn't make sense. Um, and it doesn't make sense to me as well. And I wonder if, um, especially, I don't know, it seems like it's kind of regressing to the 1950s in a sense, in the modern world where we have this kind of like view of motherhood, like it's not good enough. Um, and I, I, I see this a lot and kind of, especially amongst, um, people who are self like self-proclaimed liberals who, you know, they, they say like, yeah, they want to support women's rights to choose and women's right to work in the workplace. But then if a woman chooses that she wants to have kids and she wants to be a mom, because that's like, it's, it's a meaningful thing. It's what people, like some people really want to do that. And, and then they go like, no, you're making the wrong choice. You're like, what are you doing? Why aren't you stepping up? Why aren't you standing up for the sisterhood or whatever it is? And it's so sad. I hate it. I hate it so much. It's like, let like, people make their own choices. Well, yeah. and this is like, I mean, I've, I've realized this as Eva has been getting older and mm. she'll be like, when she's like, when I'm like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she, this literally happened. And I'm totally like self-flagellation mom. <laughs> she was like, she was like, well, I want to be a mom. And I was like, oh baby, you're so much better than that. And I was oh. like, oh my gosh. But it was like a year later that I was like, wait, what did I say? Yeah. You know? And I think, and it is, it's this huge narrative around, and it, and it's, it's endemic in like all of us to include mm. the people who chose to be full-time moms, you know, for their kids. It's, I mean, I tell myself that narrative too. Of like, oh, but you're so much better than that. You know, like. It's not, it's not to say that you can't do other things, you know, like being a mom isn't mutually exclusive with other things, you know, like my mom worked really hard. Like when we were kids, she had a, a full-time job and she worked really hard, but she also was there for the family. And, and I, part of that was also that she was lucky enough that my, my dad had a, his own business and he could work from home so he could do things like driving us to school and, and picking us up from school early or something like that. They, they worked together. That's why I think like, I don't know, the family is such an important thing and to, to kind of degrade motherhood in the way that we have in the modern era as though it's like some kind of crime. Like I've literally heard like politicians in the United States saying like, you know, is it ethical to be a parent or something like, is it ethical to bring children into this world? And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't even, the, the question doesn't even make sense to me. Well, and so I'm going to call you out on something here even. because Go I for it. I 
like narrative, even in what you were saying, when you're like, my mom worked really hard at her job. And I'm like, when did we determine that the job was the thing that you did outside of the house? Let me tell you, I have mm. been the director of operations for a nonprofit. I have been mm. the CEO of my own company. I have been a government contractor and I have been a mom full time. None the, the time when I worked the hardest was when I was the mom. Yeah, I'm sure my mom worked worked really hard as a mom too. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and so that it's like even just just like saying, well, well, you can work too. Like, ex I'm sorry, what do you mean? Like, what kind of a narrative are we saying when we're it's like, well, you can work as well when you're a mom? And it's like, but no, but you are working when you're. A mom. Yeah, yeah. So maybe like defined terms, like work as in you can work outside of the home, you can get a job, you can do this. And there are so many, there are so many options open now, um, especially like, I, I think more than in ever in human history, just because of the convenience of our lives, you know, there are so many options for us. And I, I really think that people should be awake to those possibilities, like whatever, whatever it is that you want, you have to go for it. But you also, all, I think the thing that we don't talk about anywhere near enough is the responsibility on the other side of that right it's like when you make your choice you have to own that choice you yeah. can't you can't make a choice to have kids and then complain that you know you you don't get all of the other stuff that you get when you don't have kids you know it's like oh i can't go on holidays anymore as much as i want to or i can't do this or everything's really expensive or it's like well if you made the choice to have children you've got to own that choice and it's no one else's fault you know i mean and unless it is someone else's fault but it's usually not <laughs> so being able to being able to um choose that and and own it i think that's a that's an empowering thing you know to to say well you know i made this choice and i i cut off doors to myself and i i said you know i'm going to live in japan for 10 years and so i cut off the possibility of you know working in the uk and and working up in different companies and now you know if i go back i'm not going to have the same opportunities because i've basically spent like eight years in in japan teaching kindergartens and international schools and yeah like starting my own business as well and doing other things so it's definitely changed me and i think it's definitely changed me for the better but you know i made those choices i'm continuing to make those choices every day yeah yeah i think that 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 idea of like conscious choice making is really 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 important and this and and i think i've talked about it before on here too of like um n of not introducing a victim into the system and mm. i i mean i've been super guilty of doing this for a really long I mean, time what do you mean introducing a victim so like when when in conversation when someone will say like um like well i have kids so you know i just it's it stinks because i can't go on holiday anymore right mm. that's introducing a victim into the conversation into this system okay. whatever that is it's just introducing a victim that's there it's introducing that victim voice you've done the saboteur okay. stuff right no that was um that was the, okay. the leadership one right i didn't do yeah. that one. so so it's like so we have empowering voices or empowering narratives you know mm. and then we have the disempowering narratives right and one of the dis disempowering narratives if you want to call it that is that victim of like i'm mm. a victim mm. of life and and it can come out in any in so many different ways and really interestingly and this is something that i am so interested in because of like conflict resolution and just kind of mm -hmm those sorts of when people are, are pointing at each other when like one person standing over here and they have a point of view and another person standing over here and they have a point of view and there's a topic that they're talking about in the middle 
if they keep that topic in the middle, then they start pointing fingers at each other and blaming each other for it. And that is just simply introducing the victim into the system. Like if you mm. think of the whole thing as a system, it's just introducing a, the victim narrative. It's choosing the victim narrative for that system, whatever it is. So by, like, by doing, by doing what, like by getting, by asking the other person to, to, or like telling saying the other person that they're doing something. So like, for example, if there's one side over here that believes that no abortions and there's okay. one side over here that believes abortions for all. And then there's like this, this, the topic in the middle is abortion. Then what they do is they sit there and they start pointing fingers at each other and mm. being like, you're bad because you're doing this. You're bad because you're doing this. And it introduces just a victim narrative into the system. Mm -hmm. They're choosing that victim narrative. Whereas like it's, it's, a, it's your fault. Yes. Faultiness, like yeah. blame, not right. being responsible for it, right? Whereas if you can take the, the topic and move it out so that both of the parties are standing next to each other and, mm. and saying, oh, look at this topic out here. Instead of them pointing fingers at each other, they're pointing at the topic and saying, look, we're standing next to each other. We co-created this situation. Mm. How can we now do something about it what can we create to build on it for the next thing you know and so it's taking out that victim narrative and it's choosing a more empowering narrative for mm. that issue for that that system that they're in yeah that's really interesting and i i try to do that in uh, my my high school classes that i'm currently teaching um i do this thing called a socratic seminar and any teachers who uh that you know are listening might have heard of a socratic seminar and the idea behind the socratic seminar is that it's it's kind of similar to a debate but the problem the thing with a debate is that what they people have already picked their sides before the debate starts and they've done their research and they're like this is my position whereas a socratic seminar you don't come with a pre uh pre-chosen position you come to try and figure out what is the truth and so whenever you start debating like or if they start debating or start arguing the the role of like a facilitator like a teacher like myself is to say okay so you're debating and that's not what this is for. Remember that this is for finding out what is true, just finding facts that we can agree on and then having discussions about the, the implications of those facts. You know, like the abortion thing is like people can point that finger at each other. They can point it at a topic outside. They can also point it at themselves, mm -hmm. you know, and all of those things can glean some truth, but none of them by themselves can glean the total truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's so interesting. I personally think that, um, so I used to think of conversation as being this place of, to debate, to find the absolute truth, what the absolute truth was in the situation. And now I think of it a lot more as like building blocks or Legos of like, how are we going to build on top of each other? Because I think getting to that absolute truth, it can be, it can feel like the elephant, you know, it can feel like this huge mountain out there that we're like, whoa, we got to get to the absolute truth. And it's like, okay, let's just get one step ahead. You know, let's, let's figure out what's the one step ahead of now. And then let's go do that thing, you know? Mm. And I think it, people don't realize how long it takes sometimes because people, people do change their minds. I change my mind frequently. And, and I think I'm a lot more susceptible to changing my mind than maybe a lot of other people, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. But, um, but it can take a long time. You can, you can sometimes, like when you have changed your mind on something, you can trace it back sometimes to an experience you had. You know, like I can trace back my shift in thinking about 
um, I don't know, like, I, I can't think of a great example, but you can, you can see like how you thought when you were a kid. And then there's like an event that something happened, like someone told you something and you're like, oh, and then it took you a year to work through that. You know what I mean? Like it can take you a year to actually change your opinion really when you know what changed it. So when people go into debates thinking like, okay, I'm going to change someone's mind right now in the next 20 minutes, it's like, well, maybe, but it's unlikely. And actually maybe all you need to do is just to talk with them in a way that gets them to hear you. And that's all you really need is if they hear you and then you're not taking responsibility. To, yeah. You're opening the door. You're not taking responsibility for them changing their whole mind, their whole perspective. That's a beautiful way of putting it. And I think it's such an incredibly, that I think is such an incredibly important point. And, um, and I think that helps me personally to, I, I get worked up in conversation sometimes. And oh, really? <laughs> I don't believe you. I've never, I've never experienced that with you before in my life, Carmen. Right. <laughs> when we're hanging out in Rome and you're, and you're, you're getting all worked up and I'm like, can I, can I say something? And you're like, no, I'm, I'm going, I'm going. <laughs> I'm a very passionate person. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I love that about you. And I, and, and it is, I think it's very helpful to, to know when it is appropriate to, to balance that passion with the, the kind of like openness. I think mm. that that's, that's sort of how I think of it. It's like, like, how am I going to be super passionate about this thing and really stand for it? Because I think it's a perspective that needs to be heard in this situation. And then how am I going to just let it go? You know, how am I going to then be open to receiving the other perspectives that are coming in? I, we, I did this thing with, um, with my group uh, a few weeks ago that was cloud and tree. And it's like, how can, sometimes you need to be a cloud and just let it, let it like float through you and, and observe what's going on. And sometimes you really need to be a tree and just be like that passionate voice of like, and I'm going to stand up for this perspective in this dialogue. Mm. I like that idea. Um, I wonder if I, I'm not sure if I agree with it um, in terms of like the, cause I don't know how to know which time I should do what. Um, one of the things that I really benefited a lot from was um, was Marshall Rosenberg's ideas about uh, nonviolent communication, and yeah, I've talked about it with you before. And and one of his um, core principles is understanding your having a vocabulary for your own needs, and not expecting other people to meet those needs. And so when it comes to like you know debating ideas with people, or arguing with people, and trying to figure out like what's your What's your perspective on things? What's your attitude towards things? Um, you've got to own your own feelings. No one can make you feel a certain way. And I used to say that all the time, like, and you hear it all the time from people, like, you made me sad. And it's like, no, nobody can make you sad. That's impossible. Um, you make yourself sad with your interpretation of other people's actions. And, and like, the, I don't know, the idea of, like, um, of having to stand against something really strongly i i don't know if that necessarily works you know like i i'm because usually i'm i'm preoccupied with the idea like what actually works what actually changes people's hearts and minds what actually gets people to hear you and and it seems like to me a lot of the time it's about um connecting with people first and um and i think especially like when you're a tree if you're like i'm gonna i'm not moving i'm rooted you know then uh that can prevent other people from being able to hear you you know 
I, I mean, I hear you. I do. I understand what you're saying really honestly. And, um, and, and I think it's an important thing to keep inside of our heads of like, of exactly that, of, of how much are we going to stand? Um, how much are we going to stand in that rooted position? Um, mm -hmm. and, and what I would say is I spent too much of my life being allowed to not be rooted in that way mm -hmm. and really, really, really just being so open and seeing all of these different perspectives and all of these different possibilities, which frankly was really amazing for me because I grew, like I, I grew a lot as a human being because I allowed myself to be wrong over and over and over and over and over mm -hmm. again. Because I think in every situation, no matter what, you can always find a quote unquote right and a quote unquote wrong. I think that there's always, it's, it's never 100%, you know what I mean? And so I, I so frequently allowed myself to be in the wrong and I grew so much and I've, and it's taken me time in the last few years to really be like, no, no, I do know some things, you know, like this is a, this is a powerful, this is a powerful perspective. And I would say that like, for me with the being the tree, instead of it standing against other people, it's yeah. standing for the other people that are behind me. You know what I mean? Okay. It's standing for, the, for that position because I'm not the only one that carries that position. And I think that that when, I like to think of like, so, and this is something that I teach in my, in, in the workshops and stuff like that is um, you have to, you have to take that red passion and almost like rebellious, passionate energy and um and you have to use it in service to the love like that that really pink love of like this is the thing that i think that we should go for and when i look at people who are like the great leaders of the past if like martin luther king is a really really great um example of that if you listen to him speaking he's not, he is speaking like a tree like the man is like a tree like he is definitely standing for something and he is speaking for this perspective and he's using all of this passion for this perspective and then he's doing it wrapped up kind of in love you know like it's mingled it's mingled mm. with that love and i think that i think he i think what you said is super important that he's like i'm not going to change your mind in this instant like maybe mm. some people i will and maybe yeah. some people i won't that's not what matters what matters right. is that i need to speak my truth in this way at this moment now because that's what i need to do so a tangent off of that as i'm as i'm listening about martin luther king is i wonder what you think he would say to the narratives that people have about um about the world today um it seems like there are so many people who are worried that the world is in a worse position than it was when he was you know fighting for people's civil rights and and when people choose their narrative about that, when they choose their story, like they choose the story, like um, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of a better example, but there's the, the one recently of um, Elizabeth Warren as she drops out of the U S presidential race that she sings because of sexism. And that's also choosing a story that's choosing a perspective. Right. And, and I, I don't know, like I have so much faith in women because I have so many strong women in my life and I have so many strong women, like growing up, like both of my sisters are like, 
you, you've met one of my sisters and both of my sisters are like super inspiring, strong, powerful women. My mom is like a business leader in the UK. Like that, I, I grew up with women who just didn't give a shit what anyone thought and just did what they wanted to do. And then to have someone saying, you know, like, oh, you can't do anything because you're a woman. I'm like, God, I have so much more faith in women than you do. You know, like, I don't know. I, that, I feel like people are choosing that narrative over and over and in schools and in, in society. And it's, it makes me really sad because I don't know. I, I think people have a lot of potential that if they just choose that, like, you know what, I'm not going to let anything stop me. This is my thing. This is what I'm going to do. And, um, and don't let anyone stop me. And, uh, and they could choose that at any time, you know? I think, again, I think that that goes back to that victim narrative, you know, of like yeah. not stopping out because of somebody else or some external yeah. thing or whatever. You know, I think that that is, it's introducing this like, poor me, I'm in this victim mm -hmm. mentality. So if I think if Martin Luther King were here, I think he would, he would be like, go live in your integrity figure out yeah. what you stand for and go stand for it. Like, I think that the, I think in watching his speeches and his stuff, that's what I would think I feel like comes out over and over again. And, and, and like, not in a combative way, right. Mm. Just in a, like, I, I love this analogy. We're like, if we think of the world as an 8 billion piece puzzle, you know, and each one of us, is a piece of that puzzle. Mm -hmm. Well, we're not going to see the picture unless each one of us figures out what our puzzle piece looks like, you know, mm -hmm. and then is that puzzle piece, you know what I mean? And like, and, and it's not like a kind of going back to the controlling of, you know, controlling life and stuff like that. It's like, not in a, like, I'm going to force my piece into this spot, but like, I'm going to look right. at what's going on around me and I'm going to kind of go with the flow to find where my, my peace fits into this world. And mm. I think, I think the peace changes over time. Like my experience, it's not like I figured out what my peace looked like and then that's it on this, on this, I'm done for the rest of my life. You know, I think that it changed. Mm. I think it, it go, it moves over time as well. And I don't think that any of us are going to know what that puzzle looks like if we don't figure out what each one of our pieces really is. Doesn't that take the, the thing is that takes such a commitment to self exploration that I think so many people are just unwilling to do like, and, and maybe not just, not just unwilling to do, maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe it's like a lot of people, they don't know that they need to do that or that they don't think that they should do that. You know, there are a lot of people who are like, this is who I am. And even, you know, years after they've decided that, like they continue doing something that maybe is not actually their, their calling or not actually their, like true to who they are they're like they put their piece down it's like it fits on one side but like the three other sides are completely mismatched and they're like well i got this this is where i'm supposed to be because it fits on this side i know that's right and it's like well it could fit on that side somewhere else you know like a lot of people um and i see this a lot and i'm kind of like bringing it back to um to um japan a little bit but so many people get locked up in that work being that one side that they have to get right and um and I think this probably happens, I'm sure it happens in the West as well, um, that, that people focus so much on getting the right work and then they forget that there are other sides to them that, are, that they haven't developed, like their, the family, their hobbies, like the, their passions and things that they care about. And um, I wonder how many people give up their, their passions 
so that they can you know have a good job just so they can pay for their family and 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 survive you know and um that's oh i think there's so many things that could be said for like there that it's like we just opened up Pandora's box. I think there's so many different things that I, like there's so many Lego blocks that I could build on top of what but you I like this jigsaw analogy. It's really good. Like the, the 8 billion piece jigsaw, like it, I, I really like the idea. Um, it just then can be overwhelming to think that we have so many choices. There's, there's such a thing as like having too many choices and, and being paralyzed by the number of choices that you can make. I think that that's totally true. And so I would say, for me personally, um, uh, two things ca- that are kind of cropping up the most from what you okay. just said, which is one is I think it's important to be multi-passionate. If we we even started this discussion about it because you're talking about being a multi-passionate on pre- entrepreneur and like coming up with it, like not just being one-sided, and I think that that mm. is something. It's something that's so cool that's coming out from I think our generation is really really expanding on this idea of like, you don't have to just have one job your whole life or, you know, one career or whatever, you can be really multi-passionate. And I think when we allow ourselves to explore the multi-dimensionality of each one of us, um, it's like, it mirrors that possibility to other people. And I think it gives other people then this, this place to go to, to see themselves as well in all these different ways. And then the second, so that's the first thing that I would say is the multi-passionate. I think that's really important. Um, And then the second part about it that I would say is, I think this is why old people are super important and why we need to stop sidelining them in society. Seriously, like, because I I love old people. Like, I've loved old people ever since I was little. I used to... I love some old people. Oh, I, I love, love them all. Old. <laughs> oh, they're so great. They're so amazing. They're so much fun. Even the grumpy ones are just, they're just so wonderful. And I find great peace with old people. I think that are older people um, mm. and, and perspective, like there's mm. so much there. And when I talk with older people, they will be like, well, what's really important in this world, Carmen? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally need to think about that. Don't I? Yeah. That is true. Mm. Yeah. I, maybe, my perspective is um, kind of inf- impacted by uh, the, the experiences I've had with old people in Japan who are very traditional and, and, and sometimes very funny and sometimes incredibly sweet. And then sometimes they like, you know, complain about kids crossing the street or something and making too much noise. And it's like, well, they're kids like, you know, and, and things like that. And uh, the old people who stare at me on the trains and things like that. So, yeah i and i actually do kind of um uh i i wish that i had known more about my grandparents because i knew my grandparents on my mum's side um not very well uh they i mean my grandfather was actually in a concentration camp in um he was in auschwitz and i never really got to know him even though he died when i was a teenager but, you know, just seeing him, it was always very difficult to talk to him about anything, you know, like it was, I don't know, it was, it was an odd, he was um, perhaps understandably a difficult character, but I never got to meet my dad's parents. Like, I think my dad's mom died when I was very little. I don't remember her at all. 
and my dad's dad died before I was born. So it's very sad. Like I really wish I had met them because there's, there's so much stuff that I would love to talk to them about. Like, um, one of the things that I really love is that, um, so I, you know, I'm really into baking, right? So I love baking bread. And, um, my grandfather on my dad's side was a baker. That was his profession. And so it's kind of, it's one of those things. Like I really actually feel like somehow close to this guy that I never met, um, by, by baking bread, you know, cause I'm doing something that he probably had a lot of passion for. I love it. Hmm. I think you're such a baker in so <laughs> many different ways. I love it. I love how you mix things together and then you like stick it in the oven and you're like, what's going to happen? It's going to be crunchy on the outside and delicious and chewy on the inside. So yeah. Kind of a metaphor for life, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Mm. All right. I think that's about all the time that we have for today. Um, it's such a pleasure to talk with you as always. Oh, uh, likewise. This has been a great conversation. Thank you mm. so much for gracing mm. us with your wonderful, wonderful presence. Yeah, um, you me. And yeah, let's do it again. I think it'd be fun. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's speak all soon. All right. Love you all. Bye-bye. For those of you listening to the audiobook of Becoming Superwoman 1.0, Searching for a Cape and Boots, here is Chapter 6. Chapter 6, Jacob's Ladder. I used to think that the point of conversation was to convince others of the validity of my point of view. Over the years, I've changed this belief to now see conversations as a way to connect with another human being and perhaps discover something new about them and myself. It is the difference between debating and storytelling or work in play. In work, we are there to make something that fits the image that we have in our minds. Whereas in play, we are there to uncover and unleash unseen potentialities. I'm still kind of a basher. I don't know if you've noticed, my apologies. Apparently, my old habits and my Germanic roots, Germans can sometimes be bashy too, and I can say that because Germanic roots, sometimes they die hard. When I was young, about 11, I think, on the cusp of entering junior high, my brilliant older brother put together a speech for our high school's forensic team. He would practice it occasionally in the evenings in front of my family in preparation for a big upcoming tournament. I have images of me sitting cross-legged on the floor, warmed by the fire in our large brick fireplace, with the orange light playing over my brother's face, illuminating it with warmth and mystery. I sat enraptured. My image of myself is with huge eyes glued to my brother's face listening to the story that he wove, my world slowly widening. My brother's speech was about the vagaries of humanity in high school, and this was the uncharted, mostly terrifying land into which I was about to be thrust without a backward glance. And even more than that, his speech was a story. And not just a story, it was a performance, a transfiguration, a transmigration, where high school became the jungles of South America and each teenage group became a different form of animal. It was brilliant. And man, as the cheetah jocks roamed with the monkey nerds, it gave me hope, if only in the glimpse of understanding. 
I don't know about you, but I consistently find that life is hard, like hard. Fist bumps to Buddha on that fundamental truth. First rule of Buddhism, life is suffering. Second rule, get over it. It's hard, really, really freaking hard. Which doesn't mean that I give up and climb into despair. Occasionally there is a climb beneath the blankets, yes. What it does mean is that I work hard to make sense of it, to understand what the heck it all means and why things happen the way they happen. My brother's story helped me put a frame around my upcoming junior and high school existence. His words helped to give me some understanding of what it would all mean and how I might find my place in it all. And while it was hard to understand and so hard to live out, oh, how incredibly boring the existence would be without that struggle. I mean, seriously, snooze. Can you imagine what life would be like if we were all born exactly the same, knowing all the answers that, of course, would be the same without everything, with everything figured out? I personally used to think that that would be paradise. No more strife. No more struggles. Just endless bliss. Do you know what I think about it now? Boring. Because... While my brother's story was full of hardness and pain, as all of the animals of the high school jungle interacted with each other, it was also full of hilarity and movement and action and life. Can you imagine what the conversation between the cheetah jocks and the nerd monkeys would be in the perfect world scenario? Hey. Hey. And uh, that would be all. Like, zero more. Zero. They couldn't talk about how nice the day was because they wouldn't know the opposite of nice. It would just be the day is. They might not even be able to say that because without strife, there would be no death. So they wouldn't even know what the meaning of is is. So yeah, they'd be stuck with hay. And while occasionally that is the actual sum total of conversations between adolescent boys, We'd like to think it's a bit more for the rest of us. For the rest of us, the cheetah marathoners and the monkey Silicon Valley kings, the conversation is much more like this. Monkeys, why do you keep running so much on the ground? Way easier and more efficient to be swinging in the trees. Cheetahs, dude, have you ever run? It's like all of your muscles come alive at once and you're sucking into you all of the fecund world around us with every breath. It's like the definition of freedom and meanness and universalness all at once. And it gives you great legs. Highly recommended. Why on earth do you sit up there in the clouds instead of feeling the earth beneath your feet? Monkey, hello muscle brain. Have you ever seen the world from up here? It's like you can understand the whole point while floating effortlessly above all of the ridiculousness and minutia and, you know, bugs down there. It lets you see how everything is connected and how all of the webs and networks work together. It makes me feel tiny and huge all at the same time. Huh. I never knew that that was why I loved it so much until I just said it to you. Pause. Cheetah, well, that's pretty rad. Guess I wish I could see that sometime. 
Monkey, if you come and sit with me, I'll tell you more about it. But only if you let me ride on your back during one of your marathons. I think I'd like to feel that. Deal. Deal. Well, poop man, that's a hell of a lot more interesting than just saying hey. Recently, I was on a plane to Nairobi and was seated next to an amazing woman. Flying to help set up some more nonprofit work in Kenya, we started talking each other's ears off about leadership development, something we are both passionately devoted to. And given that it's a 10-hour flight, we ended up becoming fast friends and spoke about things that are only allowed to be spoken about between lifelong friends or the odd transition land of strangers on planes. We talked about religion. So I am a converted Catholic, more on that later. I have friends and family of literally every different religion and non-religion possible. I rank very, very high on the open-mindedness scale and I love talking to people about it. It just happens to be a pretty off-limits topic. So when I find someone that stops in their sprint down below and pauses in their swinging from the trees and meets me halfway to just chat and learn from each other, oh man, I am all in. And so we talked and we explored and it was fun. And in speaking with her, I said something that I hadn't known I believed before. I said, I think we have all of these different religions and beliefs in the world so that we can struggle with other people about it, think about it, feel about it, learn more about ourselves and what that even means, learn more new doors that can open up before us, tread new wild pathways that were already waiting in our thoughts to be discovered. I said it much less eloquently than that, and that was what I meant. And you know what? After I said that, I thought, whoa, I didn't even know I thought that. Recently, I read about the Anlo Ui culture, a group of people that have a much bigger definition of our senses than the standard Western definition. And one of the senses that they have defined captured my soul and gave it wings because it is exactly how I felt about it. I just didn't know how to express it. One of their senses is this sense of talking. And how rad is that? Basically, talking, speaking is a sense because it helps us sense what is on the inside of us. It helps us sort through all of the 900 words that are washing around in our brain every minute and it helps us choose the most important ones to express in the only 150 words per minute that most of us can actually speak. Because the beginning of every spoken sentence is an adventure, we are never quite sure exactly where it's going to take us, how that sentence is going to end. At least for me and myself, I start off a sentence having a vague idea of what I'm trying to express. And often the end of the sentence helps to define that idea even more. Or sometimes the end of the sentence isn't quite right and I can feel the slight disconnect. And in the best of times when that happens, I have someone with me that is willing to go exploring with me, willing to duke it out or jump off cliffs of thought with me or maybe disagree completely with what I'm saying and stay in the conversation to see what happens. And then maybe the struggle with each other really turns into a game. 
a hilarious ball of muddy children rolling and laughing together as they forget that the adult point is to win and instead play the game where the winners are the ones that go on the wildest adventure. In the Bible, there's a story of a man named Jacob who wrestles with God all night and is named Israel, literally the father of the 12 tribes, for his willingness to go all in and wrestle his way through. And he's given as well a dream of heaven, of the ladder that leads up to paradise. I kind of don't think it's a coincidence that the one that's willing to wrestle it out is the one that finds the ladder. Mud balls and child's play and ladders and paradise. Way, way more fun than just plain hay, in my humble opinion. <laughs>